Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The federal government had a big week in nicotine. STAT's Nicholas Florco joins us to discuss FDA placing a ban on Juul e-cigarettes and taking an initial step to limit nicotine in combustible cigarettes. We'll also break down the latest news in the life sciences, including a rumored blockbuster buyout and the next Theranos verdict. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, head of oncology product development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and how can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions So we start this week by going back out to a Theranos trial, uh, this time of Sonny Belwani. Uh, Damien, what's the latest? Yeah, so there's been considerably less coverage and cultural import, I think, assigned to the trial of Sonny Balwani, who, of course, is the former chief operating officer and functional number two at Theranos. But closing arguments in that trial actually wrapped up this week, and jury deliberations could start as early as this week, more, maybe more likely uh, next week, meaning we could be getting a verdict. So to kind of remind people who may recall, it, we spent months, I think four or five months on the Elizabeth Holmes trial, who of course is the founder and former CEO of Theranos, which led to a verdict in January that was interesting in that she was facing charges of basically defrauding investors in Theranos, lying to them about what the technology could do, but also defrauding patients who actually got Theranos tests around the country, mostly in Arizona. She was found guilty of defrauding investors, but not guilty of defrauding patients. And the thinking was basically having tuned into the trial. As CEO, she was too far removed from the actual goings-on of the lab and especially the clinics where these tests were done to really tie her to what was plainly you know, the lying that Theranos was doing. So if you cut to Balwani, who is facing basically identical charges, there's some question as to whether he will be as fortunate as Holmes was, so to speak, in that he seems to be pretty thoroughly tied to the lying to investors for which she was convicted, but also in his role as chief operating officer was more involved and you know, there are just more emails with his name on them, more evidence tying him to the day-to-day operations of Theranos' actual business of making these tests that didn't really work. So it'll be interesting to see whether he might actually get a more severe conviction uh, than Holmes did. So Damien, how long has the Balwani trial lasted, you know, compared to Elizabeth Holmes's trial? And and is it the same evidence or have they introduced and, and 
and kind of gone back and forth with different evidence. It's been a little shorter, although it has been fairly protracted. Part of that is just COVID-19 um, resulting in delays in, in the jury and in, in the proceedings of the trial. Most of the evidence is the same with a few key differences. Um, one, of the, one of the key things, I think, in the Holmes trial was her basically fabricating these documents suggesting that Pfizer and other drug companies were using and had signed off on Theranos' technology. That was more Holmes-specific. But there's also quite a bit more just day-to-day emails involving Balwani. As I said, he he was, I think, more plugged in to the process of developing these tests. But really, the big difference, I think, in terms of what was been presented is that Holmes testified on her own behalf. And also James Mattis testified in the Holmes trial. Balwani has not taken the stand, did not take the stand in his own defense. We didn't see Mattis and we didn't see Holmes. That's not maybe so much of a surprise. Um, and Holmes testifying in her defense was seen as, as kind of a, a big gambit in that, you know, people accused of these kinds of crimes don't often take the stand because it can backfire uh, so easily. Um, but her emotional pleas to the jury, I mean, I guess, you know, people can conclude what they want as to how successful they were in that she was in fact convicted and, and is awaiting sentencing. Um, but Balwani did not pull that cord, which which is interesting in itself. So I guess the question we always ask when we talk about these Theranos trials is, is there a broader implication uh, from their outcome or, you know, the society's sort of treatment of them? Um, or is it really just we're interested in this story? It was a big scandal, but it's a one off. What do you think? I could really go either way because it's always safe to say this doesn't matter as much as we pretend it does when there's, for example, a Hulu series being promoted or or just like the, you know, Sturm and Drong of a scandal is interesting. I would say, though, the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes, which is expected later this year, arguably does have implications for basically the way like business is done. Like the the this is sort of like the denouement of like the startup boom because she was convicted and the punishment that she is put through, I guess, as a result of lying and defrauding investors and raising all this money and the whole Theranos saga would theoretically have reverberations for future Elizabeth Holmeses that may yet come to exist and may overhype technology, may, you know, do the kind of like standard Silicon Valley thing that we've all now kind of sick of uh, as a narrative. I think there's something to be said for that. But that being said, you know, it's not like it'll establish a precedent and like the next fraudster will be guaranteed to get home sentenced. This is such a high profile case. We know that sentencing can be influenced by public perception. The Martin Shkreli sentence, I think, kind of illustrated that pretty well uh, a few years ago. So I think it remains to be seen. But probably the likeliest thing is that the entire world will move on from this if it hasn't already. One kind of tabloidy question I have for you, Damien. You know, there was during the Holmes trial, there was this kind of I guess there was a defense that that she put up that uh, Sonny Balwani was kind of this Bengali like figure who would cast a spell on her. And, you know, there was some talk of kind of emotional abuse. And did any of that come up during his trial? Like, has he defended himself against that? I mean, what or is that just kind of forgotten? So through his attorneys, Balwani denied the allegations of any form of abuse back when they were initially raised in the Holmes trial. None of that was basically admissible evidence in his own trial. And so, you know, the jury was instructed to, one, not read coverage of the case. um, And they were selected based upon, you know, whether they had followed the Holmes trial. So theoretically, they weren't exposed to that. And then, you know, like I said, it's not he's not being charged with that, um, with abuse or any kind of crime like that. Um, by the government. So 
you know, whether the specter of it had some kind of effect is kind of impossible to say, but at least in terms of the process of the trial, it wasn't relevant. All right. So moving on to more business-like matters, uh, last Friday, I hate when there's news on Fridays because then it takes us a whole week to talk about them. But last Friday, the Wall Street Journal re- reported that Merck was considering an acquisition of Seagen, formerly known as Seattle Genetics. Uh, they said that talks were ongoing. A-, a deal was not imminent, but still it was like a big M&A. Uh, speculation, rumor mill, people get excited about that. Meg, what's your what was your initial thoughts on on this potential deal? <laughs> I'm being honest about this. My initial thoughts were Adam was right. You brought this up <laughs> when we were talking about CGen CEO Clay Seagal's uh, sort of inauspicious departure from the company. And you said that that was sort of the speculation among investors in CGen at the time is that this could make it an M&A target. And I was like, no, that sounds a little too facile. I mean, why just because this guy leaves would this company suddenly get bought? It, it's always been talked about as a takeover target. It is now very large um, what the deal would be what something like 30 or 40 billion dollars yeah probably at least 40 billion yeah. so that's a huge deal yeah but I mean Wall Street Journal is a legit uh, source of MA <laughs> oh, news. Totally. yeah um but Adam can you explain that like why is the departure of Clay Seagal seemingly such a catalyst for this potential sale. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, we did we did talk about this and I had actually forgotten about that, Meg. But, you know, when when Clay Seagal left Seijin, you know, I, I had heard from a couple of investor friends of mine who basically said, you know, do you think that this maybe kind of puts the company up for sale, that, that that's how they would deal with all of this? And, you know, I think anytime you have that kind of major disruption at the top of a large biotech company, and, and in this case, obviously, as we as we have talked about sort of uncomfortably, the reasons for why Clay Seagal has left, you know, left Seijin, you know, he was arrested on allegations of domestic abuse. And so, you know, when that happens, you know, you have to there's investigations and the board has to come up, find a new CEO. And and so maybe that is just a time for the company to kind of transition and, and put itself up up for sale. So I think that's maybe, you know, the motivation uh, that we're seeing here. And, and like you said, Meg, you know, you know, this is not some fly by night news outlet who's reporting a rumor. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal's M&A reporters are like the best in the business. So I, it, I think it's a credible report. And I'm sure that Merck and Seijin have had have had these talks. It's interesting just in the mechanics of, of why Merck might, might want to make this happen. Seagen, as we mentioned, has made its business developing cancer therapies. Um, its most successful products are basically those where you attach um, a cancer-killing compound to an antibody that homes in on a target. It's been very successful, uh, made a lot of money, works pretty well in, in various cancers. Merck, as we know, massive pharma company have a lot of things, but also have the most successful cancer drug of the past 20 years, probably at least the last 10 in the form of Keytruda, an immunotherapy. So you can kind of see from Merck's perspective how something, how a deal like CGen would further like ensconce them in oncology, which is a very fast moving and very lucrative sector. However, the, then there's the specter of the Federal Trade Commission, which we know is taking a hard look at, at quite a few things in terms of competition in American capitalism, but specifically uh, mergers between drug companies. And they have white papers and webinars talking about how they are specifically concerned with the idea that a major drug company can 
capture a therapeutic area and thereby increase prices without competition and conceivably violate federal law. So as this Merxigen thing is kind of percolating and people are talking about it, there's this kind of unknown quantity of what is the regulatory environment for deals like this? And we don't really know. Well, so as we're watching that element of things, which I think obviously will be really important, I'm also wondering... Are there other potential suitors? I think the Wall Street Journal said there potentially are, but I I don't know that they named anyone. I wonder who else could potentially step in here. And to me, I think of, you know, who needs a company like this? Who needs assets like this? And I think a company like Gilead, but I don't know that Gilead has the firepower after the deals it's already done. And, you know, with ASCO, maybe perhaps not looking quite so great um, with their cancer beds. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? This is a pricey one for Gilead. I mean, like we said, you know, Seijin right now is a, it's about a $30 billion company. Um, so we're probably, like we said, we're probably talking about a, a deal in the, in the neighborhood of $40 billion, which, you know, is like, a, you know, again, like a 30 odd percent premium. So not like, you know, oftentimes we see these like, you know, uh, 100% premiums or 80%, 75% premiums, takeout values. Um, you know, that's probably more for a smaller deal. This is obviously a huge deal because that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, I've read some analyst notes, you know, where obviously Merck would be using a combination of cash and debt to to make an acquisition like this, um, probably more debt, which, you know, it, that's cheap these days or, or it was cheap until the Fed did what it did. But, um, you know, still that it, it's a deal that Merck could easily digest um, and make, a, you know, accretive a relatively quickly. Uh, I would say that you know, someone like a Gilead would, would have a lot uh, more difficult time doing that. One thing that's interesting about CGEN is that major pharmaceutical companies tend to have kind of like a diversity of stock ownership. They're owned by the massive mutual funds that own everything uh, in America or around the world. But CGEN is different. And Adam, I was going to ask you, you know, oh, yeah. yeah, so the the Baker Brothers, uh, right, an, exactly. an investment firm, has a huge stake in CGEN. How does that affect the sort of like game theory of a potential deal like this when there's a massive shareholder that has such a vested interest in a company? Right, yeah. I, so the Baker Brothers, uh, who are actual brothers, <laughs> uh, but also uh, the name of their uh, investment firm. But are they bakers? Uh, <laughs> are they are they bakers? Like, do they do they bake? <laughs> I I bake. I don't know if Julian and Felix do, um, <laughs> but they um, but they own as as Damien pointed out, they own about twenty five percent of Seachin. Uh That is a huge. Uh, ownership stake. And, you know, they, you know, their kind of MO or their investment strategy is to kind of go very deep and concentrated in in relatively few names. So, so uh, Seijin is one of those companies. It's one of their largest holdings and they've and they've had those holdings for a super long time. Uh, they have a board seat. So, you know, in any discussion about whether or not Seijin is putting itself for sale or whether they would accept an offer, you know, that decision is going to go through the Baker Brothers, right? That's that's going to be, um, you know, they're going to be very uh, involved in that uh, in that decision making process. And you know, if a deal does happen, you know, they have about an eight billion dollar stake uh, in the company. You know, that's money that they could then redeploy into other biotech stocks, which you know gets, gets a lot of people excited because uh, presumably they would put it, they would reinvest that money. Um, which would help other companies and, you know, get us maybe out of or start to kind of get us out of the doldrums that we're in. Until the Fed raises rates again.
We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the FDA in the context of new medicines, but for millions of Americans, the agency's most impactful work is regulating cigarettes, vape pens, and other nicotine products. And this week brought some potentially seismic news for the multi-billion dollar tobacco industry. First, on Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that the Biden administration is developing a rule that would require tobacco companies to reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. Then, on Thursday, the FDA said that it is going to order Juul Labs, once the nation's biggest vape company, to pull all of its e-cigarettes from the market, which may likely put it out of business. Joining us to explain just what's going on is Stat Washington correspondent Nicholas Florco, who has been covering the FDA's evolving approach to nicotine for the past few years. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with cigarettes. What is and isn't happening? So the FDA announced earlier this week that it wants to eventually reduce the nicotine level in cigarettes to non-addictive levels. As, as you all said, you know that would be a big public health move and one that tobacco control advocates have been pushing for as, as long as I've been covering the FDA. But as I wrote in a news story for Stat this morning, it's a really, really, really early step. Um, the FDA didn't even release any sort of regulation this week. They just announced that they want to do this eventually. Uh, without getting too technical, you know, all this hubbub was created by the FDA, including this regulation in in their list of regulations they want to put out in the next year or so. The interesting thing is that that list is notoriously unreliable, and and most people, quite frankly, ignore it until this week. It seems. Um, that being said, I mean, advocates for the policy see it as an early sign that the policy has the support of the FDA and the White House, and and they argue that in and of itself is a big deal. But to sum up, I mean, what's happening here is the FDA took a really early step towards enacting essentially a really big policy. So, Nick, as you wrote in that story you mentioned on Stat this week, the White House and the FDA have been down this road before. What happened last time? Why, why did nothing come to fruition? So that's the most interesting part here, in my opinion. So this announcement from the FDA got huge press attention this time, but the exact same thing had happened before. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, when he was FDA commissioner, took this exact same step, putting this regulation on, on what's called the regulatory agenda, but then it never materialized. In my humble opinion, you know that shows that putting something on the regulatory agenda is, is not the same thing as taking an actual regulatory action. And that the FDA taking the step isn't actually a definitive sign we'll see action on lowering nicotine levels in cigarettes. Uh, you know, I pushed Mitch Zeller, the former head of the Tobacco Center, on this exact point because he was involved in this work in the Trump administration and also the Biden administration. And he told me that the decision to put the, regula the regulation on the agenda during the Trump administration was driven by Scott Gottlieb. And when he left, that support evaporated. Zeller actually told me that he was told by the Trump administration to stop talking about this issue publicly. Uh, when when Scott left and, and he claims that the situation here is, is much different, that the Biden administration actually supports this policy, that could certainly be true. But time will really tell. And I think that whole experience during the Trump administration shows that it's really not a guarantee that anything is going to happen here just because the FDA says, hey, we want to do this eventually. So, Nick, I'm curious, on, on a functional Level, I think we all understand that if there was nicotine is the addictive substance in cigarettes, if there was less of it, cigarettes would conceivably be less addictive and thus fewer people theoretically would smoke. But do people who actually study public health that are familiar with human behavior, do they think that this idea has efficacy? Like, is, is there a risk that by reducing the molecule that you're actually seeking when you light up a cigarette, you're just motivated to smoke more cigarettes to get that same nicotine level? 
It's interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen great research on that exact point, but I think the study that gets most repeated is actually from the FDA. So take that for what you will. But they did a modeling study on this question and they argued, and it's pretty striking, um, they actually tried to model this out towards the end of the century. They they argued that by year 2100, that this would save 8 million lives, um, which is an interesting claim, um, but I haven't seen anyone actually look at sort of the behavioral side of this and figure out, you know, does this theory actually, you know, work in practice? What episode of the Read Out Loud will start in twenty one hundred? We should re- we'll revisit that when we're when we're all around in twenty one hundred. We can see what happens there. So pivoting to Juul, uh, the FDA's decision comes after years of reviewing data on vaping. You know, the agency had already banned certain flavored vape products, but had allowed Juul's rivals to market tobacco flavored e-cigarettes. So Nick, why is it taking a different position on Juul? So this decision just came out and we only have a press release from the FDA explaining its decision. But what we know is really, really fascinating. So the FDA has disclosed that it denied Juul's application, not primarily because of its appeal to, to youth, but because of insufficient toxicology data and, quote, potentially harmful chemicals leaching from the company's proprietary e-liquid pods. Of course, if this is true, it gives the FDA good reason to single out Juul. But it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and how Juul responds. It's particularly striking because while the FDA says it has concerns with the toxicology profile of Juul, it also adds in its press release that the FDA hasn't received any clinical information to suggest an immediate health hazard associated with Juul. Already, I've seen one prominent vaping advocate calling BS here and arguing that Juul needs to sue immediately. And while Jewel, while Jewel hasn't commented yet, it seems like a foregone conclusion that that is on the horizon. So, you know, similarly to the question about limiting nicotine in cigarettes, I guess the question here is like, what is the public health impact of targeting just Jewel if there are other similar products that are still out there on the market? I think it's a really interesting question, Meg, and I think it, it actually hits on something that's really interested me here. Uh, which is whether a Juul ban is really the big win for uh, tobacco control advocates who say that this is going to really limit youth use of, of Juul. You know, Juul obviously played a huge role in getting kids addicted to nicotine. That's been well documented. But the recent data shows that kids have frankly moved on. I mean, the CDC does a massive survey of teens each year on their tobacco use. And the most recent survey found that Juul wasn't the most popular brand they use, it was actually the fourth. And it was seriously trailing behind other popular youth brands like Puff Bar, which are still actually on the market. I mean, out of youth surveyed who said they use e-cigarettes, 26.8% reported they typically use Puff Bar, while 6.8% reported they use Juul. So it's a really interesting question of whether pulling Juul off the market is really this huge win that some of the tobacco control advocates say it is. What Puff Bar? Like, what is it? Like, what? <laughs> I'm happy to go into it. It's actually really, really like, interesting. Okay. I, I I am old and not hip, but Puff Bar, like that, it seemed like that would be a problematic brand name given everything that's happened in the vaping world. There's a lot of really interesting things related to Puff Bar. So Puff Bar is what's <laughs> called a synthetic product. Um, and so this product basically popped up to exploit a loophole uh, in the tobacco law. Basically, prior to a few months ago, the FDA didn't have really clear power to regulate products where 
the tobacco wasn't actually derived from a tobacco leaf. It was derived, it was created in a lab. Ah, okay. uh, and so Puff Bar popped up on the market, creating these disposable products in, in the flavors that, you know, were so, uh, that we all know about related to Juul. I mean, they essentially filled that void that Juul used to fill. Uh, and the interesting thing is the FDA recently got the power to regulate synthetic products. Congress actually acted here to try to close this loophole. At the moment, Puff Bar is still on the market, um, but it's going to be really interesting to see how the FDA tackles a company like that, because this is one of those companies that really just popped up to fill the void after Juul, you know, got in trouble and started to, you know, change some of the things it was doing, you know, pulling flavored products off the market, et cetera. You know, kids just migrated to this new product when when Juul stopped selling the products that they liked. So Nick, I was curious because you mentioned that term before. What is the what's the overall usage uh, of nicotine products by teens today? Is it is it down versus years past? Is it up? What what is the overall trend? So that's the other interesting ripple here is there is some evidence that youth vaping rates are going down. Um, the best data we have is actually pre-COVID, but in 2019 to 2020, we did see a sizable drop in in youth vaping rates. After we saw rates really spiking in 2017 to 2019, for example, when Juul was really at its popularity. So in 2019, for example, 27.5% of high schoolers and 10.5% of middle schoolers reported current e-cigarette use. And in 2020, roughly 20% of those in high school reported currently using e-cigs and roughly 5% of middle schoolers reported using e-cigarettes. So uh, the CDC says that its 2021 data actually can't be compared to 2019 and 2020 because of uh, because of COVID and the different methods. But it's going to be really interesting to see what we get in the next year of the survey, because it does look like there is a drop occurring in these rates. And it's going to be interesting to see if that continues to occur. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to talk about something that's not the nomination of Rob Cave. <laughs> <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you think CGen is going to get bought. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Did I lose you guys? Or was that answer just so incredible that? Did you not hear me? That's so weird. Can you hear me now? Hello?